0: You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Levengood. This is Lesson 1 in our series on Habakkuk. As we begin the study of Habakkuk, uh, it's important, I think, to understand how the Jewish people in the nation of Judah got into the situation they're in. Um, with the uh, pending judgment coming at the hands of Babylon, a nation God claims and Credit for raising up to bring judgment upon his people, among other reasons. Uh, How did they get in this situation? Well, it's always good to understand the background. And since most of us are are not great on our uh, Old Testament historical overview, I want to take a few minutes to just look back over the Old Testament to some of the major dates and some of the major uh, characters in the Old Testament. Take us all the way down to the time of Habakkuk and see what transpired and how they got in that situation. So I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of, of creation. I'm a young earth creation believer. I believe the earth is about 6,000 years old, and I base that on the word of God. To just give you two, this is not a study in creationism, but I want to give two uh, very clear texts that I believe support a young earth. Texts from the scripture, um, or words from the scripture. One is certainly... The word Yom, the Hebrew word Yom, uh, transliterated as Y-O-M. And that word, throughout the Old Testament, is always used in the sense of a 24-hour day. Uh, One of the best uses, maybe the best known use of the word Yom, is the day that we know as Yom Kippur, still celebrated by Jewish people, at least um, Orthodox Jews. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And clearly the Day of Atonement is a 24-hour day, as are the other uses of that word in the Old Testament, representing 24-hour days. So one of the ways that we understand what words mean is by textual comparison, and if yam means 24-hour days in all these other places, it certainly gives great credibility and good sense and logic, logically that it would mean 24-hour days in the uh, creation week in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So there's one very solid way to determine the length of time in the creation, 24-hour days. Um, And then the other one I want to mention is stated by no less than Jesus himself, God the Son, the Son of God, in Mark 10, 6. He's actually talking about divorce and marriage here. But he mentions in that verse, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Uh, he, please note, he says from the beginning of creation. The Greek word there is archi, and "arche" uh, indicates that this was really when it began, when creation began, from the origin, from the origin or the beginning of creation. God made male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve. So that. Looks like to me it was during that creation week, not 5, 10, or 15 billion years into the uh, existence of the universe. And by the way, please note again, these words are spoken by Jesus himself, who was an integral part of the creation process. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are credited in the scriptures as being uh, in the creation, Jesus being the Word of God. And we know that the scripture says, through the Word of God, the universe was created. Um, In Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, among other places, Jesus, the word of God, is credited as being uh, the source of creation. The whole trinity was involved. So I'll take Jesus' word over that of uh, modern science and uh, believing that the earth is about 6,000 years old, and so creation would have taken place around 4,000 B.C. A next major event happens Roughly, and there's different views on when exactly the Flood happened, but Genesis 6, the Flood of Noah, happened about 1,650 years after creation. We'll place that about 2350 B.C., uh, when God looked down on the earth and saw a, a horrible, horrible circumstance. Every thought of every human being was on evil continuously, except apparently Noah. So God spared Noah and the uh, members of his family. The next major event, then, moving forward, um, is, in about, is in Genesis 12, about the year 2000 B.C. God called Abraham. And Abraham, of course, obeyed the Lord and believed God. And Genesis 15:6 said he believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness a very significant statement about Abraham being saved by faith, just like Christians are today. But Abraham, around 2000 B.C., God called him, and we know Abraham is the father of the Jews, and still, um, pious Jews, Orthodox Jews, at the least, would say, yes, Abraham is our father. And, according to Paul in Galatians 3, 29, Paul says, Christians also look back to Abraham. As their father, he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Abraham comes on the scene about 2000 BC, and the in the centuries following him, the uh, horrible time known as the Egyptian bondage occurs, and that leads up to the time of Moses. Uh, many references, of course, in the in the scriptures to the Egyptian bondage. Um, being something like 400 years. Paul says in Galatians 3, 430 years later, the, the law was given. So that's a that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, pretty easy one to determine the Egyptian bondage. They've taken about probably about 400 years. In about 1500 B.C., Moses is born. Again, one of the major characters in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible, and really in human history. Moses is born... Uh, the story, of course, is Moses being hidden away and rising up in the in the uh, growing up in Pharaoh's household. But he rejected ultimately the ways of Pharaoh's household, as we learn in Hebrews eleven twenty three and following. And he said, "I want to identify with these Hebrews. I want to identify with the slaves." And he made a very clear choice: I'm going with the Hebrews. He must have understood perhaps his his heritage. He understood in some way the God of of Israel and chose to follow them, despite what would be very, very great cost to him. So uh, Moses leads the people, of course, out of Egypt through the wilderness. And about 1400 B.C., again, these are round numbers, easier to remember that way, around 1400 B.C., Israel enters the Promised Land. Uh, They don't go in under Moses because God had... um, had uh, brought judgment on Moses, and you can read about that in the Pentateuch as to why that happened. But um, Moses hands the leadership over to Joshua, and around 1400 B.C., the people enter the Promised Land. And from that time on, uh, we kind of move through that long period of 300 or so years, uh, or more, actually almost 400 years, Uh, through this uh, unusual period, kind of a strange period it would seem from our modern perspective, the period called the the Judges, from 1400 to about 1043. So that's about, uh, what, 357 years, the period known as the period of the Judges. Uh, The intention of the Judges was to have a government called a theocracy. Theocracy means God ruling, God governing and he governed through an, a, a judge that he would appoint. And his intention, of course, was that he would be king. Uh, that didn't work out so well. It wasn't God's fault, of course. It was the fault of the people um, not following with him. And it, the book of Judges is kind of a, um, just a roller coaster of events spiritually. Sometimes the people are up because they're walking and they're faithful to God. Sometimes... They fall into idolatry and rebellion. God brings in the Midianites or the Moabites or some nearby nation to discipline his people. They cry out to God. They repent and turn to him. And this pattern happens over and over again in the book of Judges. Uh, But near the end of the book or the period of the Judges, actually at the end, an incredibly important and significant event event happens. I want to read that to you from 1 Samuel Chapter 8. Now Samuel uh, was the judge over Israel, really the last judge. And I want to read from 1 Samuel 8 uh, verses 1 to 9. And notice what happens here because this event affects the entire rest of the Old Testament in a major way. So here's 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. It came about when Samuel was old that he was, that he appointed his sons now judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in Samuel's way but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Hmm. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, "Give us a king to judge us," to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, "Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them." Very big mistake anytime we reject God from being Lord over us, from Jesus being Lord of us in any area of our, of our lives, that will come back to haunt us. And uh, boy, one of the lessons, even though we're just looking at an Old Testament overview, is this lesson of uh, receiving the Lordship of Christ, allowing the Lordship of Christ, submitting to the Lordship of Christ in every conceivable area of our lives. And if God puts a, a finger on our lives and says, hey, this area you've not submitted to me, Submit immediately. Um, Submit it to immediately and continue to consecrate your lives to God. Well, the Jews did not do this. And the Lord says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being king over them. And then going on in verse 8, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And following that verse, the Lord, through Samuel, tells the people, well, this is what's going to happen if you have a human king reigning over you. Um, And it's it's not a pretty sight. He's going to take your goods from you. He's going to tax you heavily. He's going to take your sons, maybe your daughters too. And he's going to rule over you Uh, very autocratically, and in the long run, you're going to lose out. They don't care. They say, we don't care. We want a king. And interestingly, (laughs) they say, we want to be like the nations around us. What What a prophetic, accidentally prophetic statement that was, because they did indeed become like the nations around them. So, of course, the first king is Saul, and he reigns for about 40 years. That doesn't go real well, um, and in the end, Saul is uh, rejected by God, and he actually ends up committing suicide in a battle where he falls on his own sword. But God, of course, has, has already selected David to be the next king, and of course, in David, the, uh, the line of the Messiah was established. The kingly line of Messiah, through the uh, tribe of Judah, Um, that Judah was the kingly tribe and through the line of Judah and the line of David, eventually Jesus, Messiah, was born. So interestingly there, Jesus became uh, not only the uh, king, but also the Messiah and fulfilled two offices, two other offices, I should say, the office of prophet and the office of priest. Now, no one in Israel was allowed to fulfill all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king but Jesus only Jesus was allowed to be in that position and only he was legitimately allowed to fulfill them in fact if you remember the story of Uzziah one of the kings and actually a good king over the nation of Judah unfortunately at one point he became very filled with pride and looked around his kingdom and said look at the great things I've done and refused at some point to give glory to God and Uzziah decided to go into the temple And start uh, acting like a priest. Well, you weren't allowed to do that. You were either, if you were any of those offices, you were either a priest or a prophet or a king. You couldn't be all three. And when Uzziah the king tried to function as a priest, God struck him in the temple with leprosy. And he uh, he turned away from that and repented from that out of fear. But the scripture says for the rest of his life, he was a leper. So in any case, in 1011 B.C., 1,011 years before Christ, uh, David becomes king, and the line of Messiah is established. Listen to these five verses from Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the branch of Jesse. Jesse, of course, is the father of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor will he make a decision by what his eyes hear. He will judge the righteous, but with righteousness rather, he will judge the poor, and he will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. And also righteousness will be about his, will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his, about his uh, waist. So, you know, some of those things you could say about David, but certainly, certainly the last couple of verses there can only refer to Messiah. So the root of Jesse, uh, who was the father of David, and out from his roots, ultimately from David's roots as well, the Messiah will come. So David uh, is the line out of which Messiah came, and again also out of the uh, kingly tribe of Judah. So <clears throat> David reigns for about 40 years, and down around uh, the year 971, his son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon is one of those cases of uh, making a great start. We know Solomon prayed this incredible prayer of, of, uh, over the temple to dedicate the temple, and he was a man of great wisdom, and God said, ask whatever you want, and Solomon said, give me wisdom, Lord, and Solomon was famed around the world at his time for his wisdom. Unfortunately, we also know that Solomon acted very foolishly, despite great spiritual wisdom, as he uh, took wife after wife, and he did that to extend his kingdom, uh, at least in, in many regards. He didn't have to do that. God would have extended his kingdom according, according to the will of the Lord. But David did this on his own, marrying, having political marriages. And each time he had a political marriage, of course, he would unfortunately bring in the gods of the women's, the women that he was marrying. That is, the daughters of other kings and princesses and so forth. And he would bring their gods into the land. And ultimately, as the scripture said, this turned his heart from God. In fact, here's 1 Kings 11. I'll read 1 to 4 and then 11 to 13. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. By the way, the Jews were not supposed to intermarry. Uh, with, uh, with Gentiles at this point in history. And yet here's the king himself completely in disobedience to the Lord marrying pagan women, Gentile women, and adopting their gods. The same is said of us, if you're a, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, God has clearly said, do not be unequally yoked. If you are in the process of, uh, of developing a relationship with someone, of the opposite sex who is not a believer and you are, you need to stop that immediately. You're in disobedience to God. Here's what happened to Solomon. So he takes all these wives, verse 2, from the nations according to which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after these other gods. And Solomon held fast to these women in love. He had 700 wives, princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away. For, for when Solomon was old his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now look we know that David his father was not a perfect man. some of his sins are recorded in in, in the scriptures about his life and a, a couple of really huge ones that really damaged him and yet nonetheless, David was a man who was repentant. When he would commit a sin, he would come to the point of repentance. In fact, he, he wrote that, that tremendous uh, psalm of repentance, uh, Psalm 51, in which he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, and, and those wonderful statements about repentance in Psalm 51. But we don't see that from Solomon. Uh, it looks like he doesn't repent. It looks like he holds on to his wives and becomes an idolatry, an idolater, and actually, uh, let me read two more verses, three more verses from 1 Kings 11, verses 11 to 13. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Note, friends, God doesn't say. I'll give it all to your son, which would be the normal course of the events. He says, I'm going to give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your day for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And indeed, that's exactly what happened after Solomon died in, uh, in the year 931, the kingdom was divided. Um, and one, one large tribe, the tribe of Judah, and the very small tribe of Benjamin also, stuck with Judah. So the son, of, the son of Solomon, the guy by the name of Rehoboam, really only ended up with two tribes, one of which was very small. And they retained the name of Judah. And in Judah was the city of Jerusalem, and this was known as the South Kingdom. Um, the Northern Kingdom, the other ten tribes of Israel, came under this man who was not the son, not the rightful descendant in the Messianic line, but nonetheless, because of Solomon's ridiculous sin, this man named Jeroboam became the leader in the of the northern uh, nation, which retained the name of Israel, and by far a larger area and bigger population 10 tribes the north kingdom now one of the things you've got to understand if you look through the old testament otherwise there's great confusion and, and the the new testament the old testament is tough it's you got to you've got to grasp some basic principles to understand what's going on and from the time uh, after solomon on through the entire rest of the old testament there are two hebrew nations Very important from 931 BC on. There's the South Kingdom known as Judah, and that is uh, the capital of Judah is Jerusalem, where the kings reigned from. But there's also the North Kingdom called Israel, the ten tribes, and those are under. They begin under the the uh, the name of this man, this first king of the North Kingdom, Jeroboam. So uh, as as uh, as history moves forward. Uh, the scriptures in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, First and Second Kings, uh, relates all of these kings in both of those nations. Pathetically, sometimes they, the two Hebrew nations were at war with each other. Uh, certainly not at all what God had intended. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, um, the North Kingdom, the, the kingdoms that retained the name Israel, They had something like 19 kings over the course of their history. And every single one of them, the scripture reports that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single king, and I think it's 19 of them, are reported as having done evil in the sight of the Lord. They were all idolaters. And now it wasn't that God ignored them and said, forget you. He sent prophet after prophet to the North Kingdom, as he did to the South Kingdom also, and called them to repentance, called them back, said, return to me. Repent of your deeds, I'll forgive you. But they never did. So, after about 209 years, from 931 to 722... Um, 209 years, the nation of Israel, the North Kingdom, was judged by God because they absolutely refused to repent and continued in an endless idolatry against the Lord. And so God finally, and He warned and warned them of this. He raised up the nation, and at this time, the time of the 722 BC, the world power was called Assyria, and He raised up the nation of Assyria. They came in and crushed. The Northern Kingdom of Israel crushed them. In fact, they sent or they dispersed those people into the world. In fact, if you've ever heard that that uh, phrase, "the lost tribes of Israel," that's who it's talking about, and that's when that happened. Seven twenty-two, Israel is destroyed by Assyria, and those tribes never came back to the land. At least they never came back as uh, entire tribes. They were lost. Assyria beat them down and dispersed them. So, so much for the northern kingdom. And can I say anything more about the the importance of walking faithfully and consistently with God? When you look at that nation which refused repentance, refused to turn from idolatry, and all the sin implied by idolatry, God finally judged them. His own people judged them, and sent them out of, his, out of the promised land. Now, as for uh, Judah, the south kingdom, they did better. They did quite a bit better. About half of their kings, roughly half of them, the scripture evaluates them as good. It said they did right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and unfortunately, about half of them, the scripture says, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So they certainly were not the perfect nation. But they had enough wherewithal spiritually that they lasted well over 100 years longer than Israel, the North Kingdom, did. Now we're getting close to uh, the time that Habakkuk is raised up. So for uh, many generations, um, sometimes the, the, the nation of Judah went downhill, and uh, God would send prophets, and sometimes they'd come back and, and repent. Uh, one of the, they, had, they had several really great kings, one that really stands out, who reigned in the time of uh, of Isaiah the prophet was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah brought great revival and and uh, tore down the altars and, and just in, in seemingly in every way was a really good godly king, and because of his kingdom the because of his kingship the, the nation the life of the nation was extended. Uh, now we'll talk uh, perhaps next time about. Um, one of Hezekiah's sons, a guy by the name of Manasseh, that didn't do quite so well. Uh, But nonetheless, there was the great king Hezekiah, also another king, Josiah, also who we will talk about, who was another great and godly king. And Josiah reigned right before Habakkuk came on the scene as a prophet. In fact, the death of Josiah really uh, put... Habakkuk's ministry in place. And we'll talk about that next time. Um, in 606 and 605, sometime in there, the, the uh, nation of Judah had come to a point, unfortunately, where God said, just like he had said with the North Kingdom, I'm done with you, I am going to bring judgment. Right before this 605-606 date, Habakkuk, Habakkuk's brief prophetic ministry occurs. And by 606, 605, God brings the first in invasion of Judah by the Babylonians. And as we'll see next time when we read from um, Habakkuk, they're referred to as the Chaldeans. That was the sort of the ethnic name of these people. But it was the nation of Babylon under a name you probably know. A very famous king from the Old Testament by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who plays into some very interesting and important Uh, events and prophecies in the Old Testament. And at 606 and 605, Judah is invaded by Babylon. Now, by the grace of God, Judah is not destroyed at this point. And I've always felt like God brings this Babylonian king and his army, and they understand, the Jews understand, this is the reigning power in the world right now. And if they wanted to crush Judah, they could have. But God graciously... uh, calls Babylon the Babylonian army back to Babylon, and although they have begun to take control over Judah and Jerusalem, they didn't crush them yet. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 1 is about the events immediately after this first invasion of Babylon into Judah. Because Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others are taken by the Babylonians back to their nation. But the the Jewish people in Judah still don't repent. And so about eight or nine years later, um, the Babylonians return and defeat Judah more effectively this time. This is in 597 B.C. And... At this point, 10,000 captives are taken out of Jerusalem and Judah and taken to Babylon. So now it's getting more more powerful and and more controlling for Babylon, and, and Judah is paying tribute to them. And by the way, at this time, the prophet Ezekiel is taken out of Judah, and he's now taken to Babylon. So Daniel and Ezekiel both did all of their prophetic Ministry not in Israel, not in Judah, not in Jerusalem. It was all done in Babylon. Um, the the, uh, the king Josiah, who I mentioned, who was a great king, who when he died, uh, God said, basically said, "That's it." I gave Josiah peace during his time because he was a godly man. The next four kings, who reigned from the death of Josiah until the end of Judah, were all bad. They all did evil in the sight of of God. They were wicked. Next week we may read about some of those decisions they made and some of the terrible things they did. But in any case, in 586, about 20 or so years after Habakkuk's ministry, Babylon comes and they crush Judah. They crush Judah. That is reported in Jeremiah 52 a very stark and, and kind of depressing chapter to read because you see how Babylon crushes Jews, Jerusalem, tears down the walls, burns the city, and maybe most significantly burns the Solomon's temple to the ground. And that is a major event in, uh, in the history of Israel um, because now there's no temple. So the Jewish people cannot really legitimately practice uh, the, religious, uh, the religious events that they're supposed to practice. And God has brought judgment against them using the nation of Babylon. Here's what Jeremiah 29.10 says, however. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you, Judah, back to this place. So God says through Jeremiah, and by the way, Jeremiah was also a contemporary of of Habakkuk and Ezekiel and Daniel, and God speaks through Jeremiah and says, my people are going to be in captivity for 70 years. And one of the most fascinating things in uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, and as much as I think any prophecy, shows the absolute sovereignty of God over human history, that God does what he wants And ultimately, no human can thwart his purposes. He's in control. The beginning of the judgment on Judah began in 606 B.C. with the first defeat of Judah and the taking of Daniel and his friends. And from that point on, the the Jews were really under the thumb of Babylon. From there, if you go 70 years forward, you go to 536 B.C. Well, in 536 BC, by that time Babylon had been defeated and the king of Medo-Persia, a man named Cyrus, had told the Jews, "You can go back to your land." So in 536, this friends, listen to this, exactly 70 years later, as God prophesied, 50,000 Jews come back to the promised land. 606 to 536. God is true to his word. And actually there's another way you could look at that too. Another 70 year measurement, which works perfectly. In 586, as I mentioned, and you can read about in Jeremiah 52, um, the temple was destroyed, burned to the ground by the Babylonians. 586, exactly 70 years later, in 516, a new temple was dedicated in Jerusalem. So it's almost like double indemnity. God says, 70 years captivity. You can measure it either one of those ways, but it works out perfectly. God is in control. Next time, we will look at a little bit more specific background of Habakkuk himself and get into the text. Thank you for your uh, attention.